0: Five things as we close here. Good news about hell to help unravel many people's misconceptions about how God destroys the wicked, okay? And well, you see the supporting texts there. Um, I've arranged it uh, on another note here, but the texts are there. But first of all, I want to emphasize that I could follow along with that one. I'm just going to share with what I got here that hell only lasts forever. And by that I mean the biblical forever. Time after time after time, Old Testament, and New. You see, forever not being forever without an end. It means forever until the end, until the job is done. Okay, so over and over, and of course, King David is a great example of that. What does forever mean in Scripture? Well, I mean, let me give you a couple here. Exodus twenty-one verses five and six says. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges, he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Does that mean he's granted everlasting life? No. He's just made a choice for the rest of his life, forever, until the end, right? You see this in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Well, was she giving her child, Samuel, eternal, everlasting life? No. She was saying, I'm going to give him for the rest of his life. That's what we're talking about, Forever. And of course, King David is the epitome of this all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 89.1, I will sing of the mercy of the Lord forever. Psalm 145, 1 and 2, I will extol you, my God and my King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. But then 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. He died. <laughs> then when you get to Acts chapter 2, Verses 29 and 34, the Apostle Peter says, Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, for David did not ascend into the heavens. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 29 and 34. So when David meant forever, he meant for the rest of my life until it's done. And that's what the Bible's description of the destruction of the wicked means. It's forever until it is complete, not forever without an end. Okay? So helping people see the biblical concept of forever is very helpful when we talk about forever destruction. Okay? Now, point number two that's good news is that hell actually kills most people's concept of hell is a place where you go to do everything except die. It's going to be long, it's going to be hot, it's going to be miserable and painful it, and it's going to be everlasting, unceasing torment. The one thing that doesn't happen in hell is death. When as we've already talked about John chapter 3 verse 16 said the two choices are everlasting life with Jesus or perish, die. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let's support this idea that hell actually destroys, doesn't just harm. For behold, it says, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Hell doesn't just hurt, hell kills. Psalm 37, repeatedly, in verses 10 through 20 here, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadow, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. By the way, in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the smoke of their torment rises forever, the results last forever. It is permanent, but it's a permanent destruction, not a permanent destroying. Do you see the difference? The results last forever. Thus, Jesus would say things like Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot destroy the soul. And of course, as we understand, the soul is the whole person, right? The eternal life that Christ offers us in him. But rather, fear him is able to destroy both soul soul and body in hell. Jesus taught that the purpose of hell was to destroy, not just to harm. So number one, hell lasts forever in the biblical sense. Good news number two is that hell actually works. It kills. It doesn't just hurt people. It destroys. Number three, misconception is that hell is an event not a place it's an event not a place so many people have this idea that maybe in the you know flaming center of the earth or some mystical far away place there's this other alternate receptacle for the wicked where god that right now there's a location where conscious souls are being taken when they die to this place of torment like that's not anywhere in the Bible. Hell, the destruction of the wicked in the fires at the last day is an event that happens at the end, as we've already discussed, not a place where God sends people now. It's not a place, it's an event. Notice Job 21, verse 30, where it says, The wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. What does it mean they're reserved? In the fires of hell? No. Where are they reserved? Just in the grave, right? The experience of the wicked dead right now is the experience of the righteous dead right now. For the dead, both righteous and wicked, know what? Nothing. They're not up there praising the Lord. They're not up down there fearing the Lord and His... There just aren't. The experience is like sleep. 2 Peter 3, verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's a day. It's it's an event, not a place. In Jude, verses 6 and 7, I only say verses 6 and 7 because there's only one chapter, just one says, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, that is the wicked angels, it says, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. By the way, think about that passage. Do you remember Jesus' encounter with the demoniacs? They said, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? And then they asked a question. Have you come here to... Torment us, does anybody remember that next phrase they said? Before the time. Do the wicked angels know that there is a time set for their destruction? Yes. And when they saw Jesus coming here, they were afraid that he had called an audible at the line and said, we're going to go early. Right? And they say, whoa, 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 whoa. Your word says, right? And they were going to hold him to his word. Again, Jude 6 and 7, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So we already have an example of those who have died in that eternal fire, and it's Sodom and Gomorrah. If you went to Sodom and Gomorrah today, are they still burning? No. They just aren't. They've been dissolved into ash. There's nothing left. And the Bible specifically uses them as an example of the experience of the destruction of the wicked. It has an end point. And when it's done, it's done for good. Counterintuitively, good news number four out of five. Only the righteous live with eternal fire. Now you think, I thought the whole thing is that the wicked live with eternal fire. We're trying to tell them there is no. No, there is an eternal fire. And only one group will live in it. And it's not the wicked, it's the righteous. You know, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 says something interesting, as all the Bible does. <laughs> it says, Our God is a what? consuming fire. Remember what we already talked about, what Moses asked the Lord, Lord, let me see your glory. Please show me your glory. And what did the Lord say? No man can see my face and live. So when the wicked encounter the raw, unfiltered, unvarnished, unveiled glory of God in their wickedness, They don't live in that fire. But there is a group who will, according to Scripture. Now, look at this. Revelation chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this promise. They shall, speaking of the redeemed, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, for they need no, no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. They're going to see his face. They're going to dwell in the light of his presence and glory. They, it's so bright you don't even need a sun there and they're going to be fine. How's that possible? I thought he said, no one should see my face and live. It's not that God has changed, that God has changed us so that we can dwell in his presence. You see the difference? Thus, you go to Isaiah 33, and it makes sense when you read in verses 14 and 15. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? And the answer given is, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. The people who live in a fiery presence for eternity aren't the wicked. It's the righteous. And finally, number five, as we're so close to our five o'clock hour, is the best news about hell that there is, is that hell isn't meant for you. Go to Matthew chapter 25. Let me show you this directly from the Bible, from the lips of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 25 starting with the verse 31 Here Jesus is describing his own second coming trying to tying together basically everything we've learned in the last two days in one passage Jesus can do that amazingly well He says when the son of man comes in his glory Speaking of the second coming, right? And with all the holy angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All of the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And notice the determination of the sheep and the goats is made before he comes, and when he comes, he's just dividing, right? Verse 33, And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Now notice this. Inherit the kingdom prepared for whom? For you. From when? The foundation of the world. It has been God's plan from the very beginning that man would be redeemed if he should fall. From the very foundation of the world, this is prepared for you. To them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then, he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for whom? The devil and his angels. Hell isn't meant for you. If you go there, it's voluntarily, but it's not what God wants. And the reason why? For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I was uh, naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see... Do you notice something interesting here? I mean, there's lots of things interesting, but particularly... That the, the response of the righteous is word for word identical to the response of the wicked. Lord, when did we see you? It's not like one group recognized Jesus and they were doing nice things to get on his good side and the other group didn't notice. Neither group noticed that it was Jesus. And that's his point. Lord, when did we see you? Hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison did not minister to you. Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment. To be clear, that is the destruction whose results are permanent and the destroying will last until it's done. but the righteous into eternal life. Only one group gets eternal life. The other one gets destruction, just like John 3.16. Perish or everlasting life. Over and over, the same thing is seen. Let me end on this thought here, by the way. It seems like an odd place to end, but... the, The response of the righteous and the wicked are identical. What makes the difference here between the redeemed and the lost? It's not like one group had secret inside knowledge and they could tell it was Jesus. Neither one of them knew. So I have to, ask, I have to imagine the differences in the inflection and in the tone. One group says, Lord, when did we see you? We didn't know it was you. We just saw people and we helped them. He's like, that's my point. You didn't know it was me. You did it anyway. Come on in. You would fit into my kingdom. The other group's like, Lord, we didn't know it was you. As if to say, if we knew it was you, we would have visited you, we would have fed you, we would have clothed you, we would have helped you. But we didn't see you, we just saw people. It's like That's my point. <laughs> you wouldn't be happy there. There's a reason it says that those who see the Father's face also have his name on their forehead. Because they have, by the grace of God, become like Jesus. And that they'll be what we used to call safe to save. You see, I think the biggest promise in the Bible is from one of the most obscure books, Nahum, chapter 1, verse 9. He asks rhetorically, what do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise a second time. You know know why there's not going to be another Lucifer or another Satan who falls from heaven? It's not because God's going to like, I will not have rebellion in my... No. And he's not going to be like, I'm taking away your power of choice. Now all of you are just mindless. We love you, we love you. Because by the way, if he did that, he could have done that from the very beginning. Because everyone has the right and inherent potential of rebellion, but no one's ever going to choose to sin again. We've seen what it's done, and we're like, no, we're not going there ever again. Mm. And again, coming back to it, That's the purpose of this life. To say, Lord, do I even want the life you're offering me? Do I want to live with you, abide by your rules, blend in with the society of angels, or would I rather be more like selfish Satan? He has given us this power to choose, and the Bible says, choose you when? This day, whom you will serve. Final thought, and I'll let you go. We kind of touched on this yesterday, but there's an urgency to that choice that has nothing to do with the second coming being so near. Too many times we say, we should get ready for Jesus coming because he's coming so soon. But when that text I just quoted, choose you this day, that's from the Old Testament, from Joshua. Not anywhere near the second coming of Jesus. Why was it important for them to choose that day? Next thing I hear is, you don't know how long you live. That's a good one. That's a better answer, but I think there's an even better answer than that. Let's say they lived a long time after that, but you just keep putting it off and keep putting it off. You know what's going to happen? You become a person who doesn't want it anymore. Because every day, our decisions become habits, become a lifestyle, and it forms what we call a character. It's no longer what we do, it becomes who we are. And there's an urgency to make a decision and commitment to Jesus today while you still hear his voice, while there's a resonating chord of response in your heart to choose this day whom you will serve. Typically, I'd say, Have we been clear this evening? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the truth about life and death and the resurrection that is found in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, also for the clarity of your word about all these important themes that are attached to it. Thank you for the truth that is so different than the error believed by so many. But Lord, now that we have this beautiful picture of Jesus and his love and his patience and his mercy and his justice all in one, help us to not only Relax into it and luxuriate for ourselves, but help us to sense the responsibility to tell someone else. Help us, Lord, to be witnesses for you, to share what we have seen and tasted of the goodness of God. And by our humble efforts and your amazing grace, Lord, hasten the coming of Jesus. For We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.